The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. Welcome uh, to the Buddhist Society of Victoria's Sunday morning program. Good, good morning, good morning to you all in Australia. Of course, elsewhere in the world it will be um, a different time. And of course, you may realize, I have to have a disclaimer, I am not Venerable Chi Kuang Sunim, who was advertised. Unfortunately, Venerable Chi Kuang Sunim is sick and can't uh, give the talk today. But our thoughts are with her of meta healing, uh, that she may recover soon. And maybe towards the end of the month, she'll be able to speak with us. So if I'm not Venerable Chi Kuang Sunim, who am I? I am Ajahn Nisarano, the Australian monk who ordained with Ajahn Brahm 23 years ago, almost 24 years ago, but have lived in Sri Lanka for many years, but now based in Newbury Buddhist Monastery outside Melbourne in Victoria, Australia. So, as usual, the format for this morning, we have the precepts, and then we do the chanting, a recollection of Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, and loving kindness too, then a Dhamma talk, comments, followed by comments, questions and complaints, as I'd like to say. And I think the only announcements that we uh, that I have in mind at the moment is, of course, we're all um, uh, going through in Melbourne, in Victoria, we're going through the COVID-19 lockdown, which is for a lockdown, stage four lockdown, called the circuit breaker, <laughs> for uh, five days, and that will finish on midnight on uh, Wednesday just after midnight. Um, for the moment, the monastery, Newbury Buddhist Monastery, is closed to visitors. But after that, uh, after the uh, after Wednesday midnight, just after midnight on Wednesday, it, uh, the, this could all change. And you can check the website, the Buddhist Society of Victoria website, the Newbury Buddhist Monastery website, and also the Facebook, and that will let you know. And of course, uh, these changes... Venerable Chi Kuang Sunim not being here, myself, uh, and the COVID restrictions, totally unexpected. And this this points to, as always, you know, this quality that we talk about, uh, uncertainty, impermanence, uh, unreliability. We cannot predict. Unpredictability, that's a good word. So this is actually one of the, the qualities that the Buddha highlights um, in our experience and which we often ignore. <laughs> so it's something that we're reminded of with this with COVID-19 restrictions and with Venerable Chi Kuang um, um, not being able to give the talk today. But uh, the theme for today uh, was suggested to me, uh, or came to my mind, I should say, um, because of uh, events this weekend. So I'd like to ask the viewers, not that you're going to uh, reply, what two events are being celebrated celebrated this weekend? What two events are being celebrated this weekend? I think everybody knows. I mean, <laughs> pretty difficult not to. Of course, the first one, and it started on really on Friday or even Thursday uh, evening, the New Year's Eve, is the Lunar New Year, uh, sometimes called the Chinese New Year, but these days Lunar New Year because... Um, it's also the new year for Korea, Vietnam, and many other countries too that uh, 
have a Chinese culture, have been influenced by Chinese culture. And so I'd like to say, Xing Nian Kua Lu, Xing Nian Kua Lu. Hopefully the tones are right, <laughs> which means Happy Lunar New Year. So that's very good. I know that most people, I'm told this, would prefer to hear Kong Hi Fat Choi, <laughs> which I've told means uh, may you uh, make a big fortune or may you get big wealth. And of course, this is the first uh, uh, Friday was the 12th, was the first day of the uh, first day of the new year, the first month, the new year, the first day of the new year. And it's, of course, a cultural holiday, uh, a religious holiday um, that's celebrated in China and many other places. And we will always, we'll see lion dances, dragon dances, fireworks, family gatherings, not so much in Melbourne this year, I think. <laughs> Unfortunate, it's the way it's happened actually. And visiting friends, and of course, the ubiquitous red envelopes. I mean, usually called Pao envelopes, I think Pao envelopes, yeah. On Pao. On And it's also a traditional time to honor the deities and our uh, ancestors and ends after 15 days. What a new year! That's really a new year, two weeks. which must be all these big lanterns. But of course, what is today? I was reminded when uh, someone came today. Of course, I already knew. It's St. Valentine's Day. So I had to do all my research, actually, on Wikipedia, of course, and found that this, this day is named after a Christian saint who was martyred. There was actually three Christian saints with the same name, but the most uh, one related to this day most is St. Valentine of Rome. So, and it's a, a Christian feast, a minor Christian fe feast that's still celebrated in uh, a lot of the Christian churches, Anglicans, Lutheran, Catholic, and Orthodox. And, uh, but as time went on, it took on new dimensions due to folk traditions and became um, much more associated with romance and romantic love and has become uh, quite a... Uh, phenomena around the, around the world and it's also a very significant commercial <laughs> holiday too or celebration so it's a it is very much a celebration of love and affection so this is and of course people associate it with sending uh, greeting cards and gifts don't they you know and uh, it says uh, the wikipedia says dating and church services <laughs> But giving chocolates, too, is another big one. And, and I remember that this uh, um, St. Valentine's Day used to be anonymous, too. That was when I was younger, and I was talking to somebody this morning who said it was the same. But I don't think that's the case now. And I remember when I was younger, I sent uh, St. Valentine's cards, but you always made it anonymous. But it was... I did it for a sense of fun, actually. It was a bit of fun. And the person would never have guessed, I think, it was from me, except a sense of humour, perhaps. <laughs> oh, yes. And uh, so but these days, of course, you know, if things are like uh, things like that are anonymous, you know, you receive flowers at the office and nobody knows who it's from or a card or chocolates or whatever, of course, people may be a bit worried because now we have, uh, since my time as... My, my days as a, a younger person. Now we have stalking. So people are worried about stalkers, aren't they? So, but for me, it was just a bit of fun, actually. So, and, um, so the question, 
I, the, these two themes suggested certain ideas to me, and it made me think, well, what makes the world go round? What do you think makes the world go round? Usually people say, money. <laughs> and that's part of Chinese New Year, or the Lunar New Year, for sure. But, uh, but I think the more important thing, one of the most important things for all human beings, and uh, probably the animals too, very much the case, is relationships. And both of these uh, celebrations, the Lunar New Year and St. Valentine's Day, are celebrating relationships. So I thought I'd focus on uh, uh, the, these, the aspect of relationships and relate it to the Buddha's teaching. And to begin with, of course, you know, first of all, the, um, particularly the Chinese uh, or the Lunar New Year. And uh, I'll just quote a, a comment from the Buddha about in a sutta called the Sigalaka, Sigalaka Sutta or Sigala Ovada Sutta sometimes it's called, which is in the long discourses of the Buddha, Diginikaya, and it's uh, Sutta number 31. He talks about different types of relationships and how to bring peace and uh, freedom from fear in those relationships. But at the end of that sutta, he has this lovely uh, verses, and this is only part of them, they're very nice. And he says here, giving gifts and kindly speech, a life well spent for others' good, even-handed in all things, impartial as each case demands. These things make the world go round, like the chariot's axle pin, the uh, yeah, axle pin, the axle. And then he talks about the relationships between children and parents, and, and how if this were not the case, uh, then there would be no respect for mother and father. So celebrating uh, uh, relationships, particularly in terms of the Lunar New Year, is, uh, is all about family, children and parents, of course, husbands and wives and friends. So and St. Valentine's Day is a different focus. <laughs> Still relationships, different focus. Romantic and sexual relationships. So this is another area which I'll deal with in a minute, uh, in shortly anyway. I don't think it's going to be a minute. Um, so the family and friends, uh, those sorts of relationships, as I mentioned, the Buddha talks about those uh, in some detail, actually, and it's a famous sutta. It's the advice to uh, a layman. Uh, called Sigalika, and uh, he uh, this sutta talks about the different types of relationships, and he talks about it in a in a different way. He talks about what binds these relationships together. In other words, the mutual uh, duties or responsibilities between these relationships as a bond for peace and freedom from fear. So, so we'll focus on. He mentions more types of relationships, but we'll focus on children and parents and wife, wives and husbands and friends. So this is the sutta, and I'll read some of it because it's very lovely to hear the word of the Buddha, and it gives you a, um, gives you a connection with the teachings. And this is very important, actually, to establish that connection with the actual teachings of the Buddha, rather than hearing everything as a commentary on his teachings. 
And so this begins, thus have I heard, as most of the suttas begin, once the Blessed One was staying at Rajagaha, at the squirrel's feeding place in the bamboo grove. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? And at that time, Sigalika, the householder's son, having got up early and gone out of Rajagaha, was paying homage with wet clothes and hair and with joined palms to the different, different directions to the east, the south, the west, the north, above um, and below. So when a person has wet clothes and hair, it's a sign of, in India at that time, perhaps still, of mourning, of mourning. So this is something related to mourning. And so the Buddha is going on arms round and he sees Sigalika paying homage to the different directions. And he says, Householder son, why have you got up early to pay homage to the different directions? And then he says, Blessed, blessed one, my father, when he was dying, told me to do so. And so, blessed one, out of respect for my father's words, which I revere, honour and hold sacred, I have got up thus early to pay homage in this way to the six directions. And uh, so this is the background to the sutra. And of course, then the Buddha continues, but, householder's son, this is not the right way to pay homage to the six directions, according to the noble one's disciples. So these are um, uh, the Buddha's disciples, according to those that are practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. Well, well, blessed one, how should one pay homage to the six directions, according to the noble one's discipline? And the Buddha then tells Sigalika how that can be done. And this is the overview uh, where he says, And how, householder's son, does the noble one's disciples protect the six directions? The six things are to be regarded as these six things are to be regarded as the six directions. The East donates, uh, denotes <laughs> uh, mother and father. The South denotes teachers. The West denotes wife and children. The North denotes friends and companions. Below denotes servants, workers and helpers. Above denotes ascetics and Brahmins, like, like the Buddha and the, his Sangha of monks and nuns. And then the, the Buddha continues, there are five ways in which a child should minister to their uh, mother and father as the eastern direction. So he's taking the east first. And that's, of course, what's the east? It's where the sun comes up. <laughs> so it's where life begins. So very important. That's probably why it is the eastern direction. And uh, so the five things that a, a, a child uh, should do for their mother or their father is having been supported by their parents, they will support their parents. So that's usually when they get older, maybe when they get sick. Um, they will perform their duties for them if the parents are ill, unable to do it, or in uh, for some other reason occupied. So this is number two. And number three is they will keep up the family traditions. So whatever... Uh, traditions the family has, they'll keep them going, like making um, uh, donations to a temple or a monastery or whatever. Um, they may have other traditions that they keep up, like a charity. They might give charity to people. 
Um, they might have other other traditions that they keep going. There's probably some funny traditions too, <laughs> I think, nevertheless. Uh, and the next one is they will be worthy of their heritage. So in other words, they live up to their family's uh, heritage, their sense of their identity as a family, and maybe going back generations and generations too. So, and the last one is after their parents' deaths, the children will distribute gifts on their behalf. And this is particularly at monasteries, at uh, temples, at these sorts of places, to make merit for their parents who have passed away. So it's very common in Buddhist countries. So they're the five things that uh, uh, children can do for their parents. But then the Buddha talks about the five things parents should do for their children. So this is a, an interesting list too. And um, they, a parent will restrain their children from doing uh, bad, doing things that will be harmful to themselves and to others. So in other words, this is probably giving them moral, sort of moral precepts, giving them idea of morality, ethics, um, and this is very important because values are really all we give our children. If we give them good values, fantastic. They'll have a happy life and uh, there'll be a contribution to a society as well. But if they don't have good values, it will probably ruin them and others as well. So this, um, this, uh, this is what parents give. They help their children to restrain from doing uh, what is bad. And of course, this is, relates to the Buddha's, the Avada Patimoka, where the Buddha says, Sabha Papasa Akaranang, not doing anything that is uh, a bad. And then the second one, of course, goes along with that uh, chant that I just did, which is supporting them to do good. So this is the negative and the positive, in a sense. The ability to restrain is a very, very important quality um, because. It allows us to say no to negative uh, states of mind, negative speech, negative action, negative states of mind. And this is not a small thing. <laughs> because if we don't have that ability, if we don't have that break, we are really just going to be subject to a lot of very strong negative uh, speech, actions and thought um, and not being able to to restrain it. So it's for our happiness and well-being that we do that. So the second one, as I mentioned, is supporting their children in doing good. And also the very practical, Buddha always very practical, teaching them some skill. So this would be giving them education in our context. So that they can make a living and uh, support themselves and possibly their parents too. <laughs> as time goes by. And this one is an interesting one. And find a suitable partner and a su suitable partner. So this is quite a common thing in, in Buddhist countries that people uh, will seek out a partner for their children. Um, and, and therefore we actually have quite often arranged marriages, so, uh, which is very different from the West. But uh, I'm not sure that uh, the success rate is is much different from romantic marriages too, because we see so many romantic marriages break up. Uh, I'm not sure that the success rate is that much different. Certainly, an arranged marriage, the expectations will be not like romantic expectations. So it's quite different. 
And in due time, this is number five, hand over the, uh, the inheritance to their children. Hand over. That's the parents handing over their inheritance to the children. So that's important too. And of course to do it in a very fair way. It doesn't cause division in the family. They can often do that. So that's the parents and the children as the eastern direction. And then the next direction, and this is very important too for relationships, is uh, there are five ways in which a husband should uh, minister to his wife as the western direction, so it's the other direction. And uh, so this is, and the list is by honouring her. That sounds nice, doesn't it? So this is being a positive um, uh, giving emphasis to good qualities that person, the, the, the wife, this person's wife has. And the second one relates to it too, because it says, by not disparaging her. And of course, this is very important in any relationship, not to have a lot of fault-finding, negative comments, particularly if they can become very harmful if repeated again and again. So this is a very positive, this is a very good advice actually. So by honoring her, so this is the positive, not disparaging her, this is the negative. And for the husband not being unfaithful, that's, that's a very important aspect of a relationship. All relationships are based on trust. <laughs> and if one, one or other of the partners is not faithful, that trust goes out the window. And of course, the same happens when um, there is violence within the family. That breaks trust too, because a person just cannot uh, trust that the other, the, the other person won't use violence, either physical, emotional, uh, psychological, verbal, all those sorts of different types of violence. So this is the number three, uh, being not being unfaithful. And, and the, the fourth one is by giving authority uh, to his wife to look after things, um, to give her the authority to act and, on, on behalf of himself, the household, the family. So this is important too. So it's sort of empowering, isn't it? It's empowering. It's not trying to dominate. It's trying to share the responsibilities, which is a very important aspect of relationships. And the last one's interesting, by providing her with adornments. <laughs> adornments. I prefer to think of this as gifts or something like that. So adornments. In those days, I guess jewellery still is. Jewellery is very important, diamonds and all this sort of thing. So they're the five that the, the, um, the Buddha recommends to Sigalika for a husband to his wife. And these are the five that he recommends for the wife to the husband. Um, and uh, the five are, first of all, by properly organizing her work, whatever that work is, um, probably in those days in the family, in the home, but um, these days not necessarily, actually. Um, these days I think women have many, what do they say, uh, many things to juggle, actually. It's a quite difficult family life and work outside the home. And by being kind to the servants, that's that's nice. If you've got servants, these, <laughs> it's not something that happens much in Australia or in the West, because servants are very expensive, uh, but it happens in Buddhist countries like Sri Lanka. Many people have servants, and they become part of the family, actually. That's another relationship. But I won't go into a relationship with uh, servants. And the third one, 
same as for the husband not being unfaithful. Very important because if there isn't a, a trust, the relationship's really rocky. Um, and of course, you know, in those days, uh, it wasn't uncommon for a wealthy uh, person, a wealthy man, to have more than one wife. And that was quite a suffering for the wives, actually. Not easy. And the fourth one the Buddha recommends for uh, wives to, for that, uh, the way they reciprocate to their husband is by protecting the stores, it says. So this is protecting the, the goods and the, the things that they own. Looking out, looking after them, making sure that they're not stolen or, or whatever, and caring for them so that they don't break down and and so on. So that's a very important aspect of it. And uh, the last one, being and being by being skillful and diligent in all she has to do. So this is just the qualities we bring to what we do: is being skillful and diligent, being careful with what we do. So this is these are good qualities to have in mind. Um, because they are they are skillful qualities, you know, skillful and diligent. Yeah, the positive qualities. And I'll just deal with uh, friends and family, uh, and this is the next one the Buddha talks about. I won't deal with the uh, the other uh, the teachers. That was another one the Buddha mentions. And there are five ways which a person should minister to their friends and companions. And this is very good advice for anyone, actually. Buy gifts. Everybody likes gifts. And actually they can, they can really touch the heart and they can uh, mend uh, difficulties in relationships by giving gifts, especially if they're given with a good heart, not with a you know, uh, manipulative uh, um, or an agenda, you know, and, uh, so that we think by doing this you know, we'll get what we want. That, that's not really giving a gift wholeheartedly. By kindly words, that's really important, and uh, by looking after their welfare, so we help them in whatever way we can, practically, you know, practically, and uh, also emotionally. This is almost covered by the fourth one, by treating them like oneself, our friends. That's lovely, isn't it? You know, it's really nice, because if you think of, you know, what you like and dislike, um, then you know, the things you do for your friends, the things you say to your friends will be things that you like, that you wouldn't mind hearing, you wouldn't mind others doing for you. So this is a good good way to gauge our conduct, our actions and our speech, and is really the basis for morality, you know. We, I always ask, you know, myself, you know, if, would I like to hear this? <laughs> If somebody said this, what I'm about to say, if somebody said it to me, would I like to hear this? And, and, and also with actions too. Would I like somebody else to do that action towards me or uh, affecting me? And the last one is a very important one, actually, for trust in relationships, and that's keeping one's word. That's the fifth. So there are the, the five ways that a person uh, ministers or helps their friends. And then... The five ways that the friends reciprocate towards that person is by, this is interesting, by looking after that person when they are inattentive. Isn't it? The term, I think, is actually a euphemism for, you know, say when they're sick, or um, the commentaries even say when the person is drunk. <laughs> so they, they, they're not, they're not, they haven't got their wits about them. So a friend is going to look after them when they're uh, under the weather, either due to 
uh, ill health or whatever reason, you know, they, they are uh, afflicted, as they say. So this is very important. And then the next one <laughs> goes with it, is by looking after the friend's property when they are inattentive. So this is very important too. You look after them, number one, so they, they don't come to grief themselves, you know, because, for instance, if people drink, they can have accidents, there can be all sorts of repercussions, violence, and, and so forth. So if we look after our friends when they're in not in good condition, but we should also look after their property as well, you know, their vehicles or whatever that, um, that may be affected by the fact that they cannot look after them themselves. And, uh, and the third one is uh, by being a refuge when our friend is afraid. That's nice, isn't it? Being a refuge when our fri friend is afraid. And by not deserting our friend when they are in trouble. That's a very, very important one. Not being a fair-weather friend. <laughs> That's what we call it in English. And the last one is and showing concern for our friend's children, for the family. Looking, uh, looking out for them as well. So that's, that is uh, very important. So that's, that is uh, Buddha's advice in terms of, you know, more family relationships, you know, and relationships between friends. And as I said, this lunar uh, new year is all about that, you know. Eating is a lot, big part of it, but also getting together, you know, and creating that sort of, that bonds and that... Uh, um, connections between people, positive connections. The important thing with all of these is the Buddha says that uh, for each of them that by covering this direction, you know, this in this case it's a northerly direction, we are making it uh, at peace and free from fear. So th these relationships give a sense of um, stability and, and also this uh, bring peace, uh, they, they reduce this sort of conflict if we have these reciprocal um, duties between the different types of relationship. So now, having dealt with uh, the, the, the more the family start, uh, type of relationships, I talk about those types of relations that St. Valentine's Day celebrates. So this is, people are really interested in this. <laughs> so there's lots of types of love. And of course, um, I always liked, Aikima used to talk about uh, meta a lot. And she'd say, you know, that uh, there are relate types of love that are with conditions and some without conditions. And the uh, the type of love that, of course, St. Valentine's Day is celebrating is with conditions, big conditions. And it's romantic and sexual love that it's celebrating. Though many people f will focus on the romantic. So St. Valentine's Day... Um, sometimes too, it's very, it's it's a good point um, that uh, romantic love and sexual love can be two different things. Sometimes there's more emphasis on the romantic than on the sexual. And on a day like today, giving flowers, giving chocolates, <laughs> or sending greeting cards, it's more towards the romantic. So that's the that's quite a uh, that's the emphasis with it. And of course, it, it reminds us. This all comes too from you know the, in the the West, because this is where the this uh, Saint Valentine's Day is coming from. Is Greek mythology, and they have two gods to do with the different types of love. One's Eros, and of course, no 
it's easy to tell what that's related to, eros, erotic. <laughs> so that's related to the god of love and sex. So that's a, an aspect of it. And the other aspect you get in Greek uh, mythology and even it's in Christianity is called agape. This is the other type of love. This is unconditional love. And of course, in that Christian context, it's love for God or God's love for one uh, for oneself. So the uh, these relationships, this is a very powerful uh, relationship, sexual relationships, romantic relationships, are very powerful. And often you see it in the in the West, particularly you see it in 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 the East as well. I see it in Sri Lanka. As, you know, everywhere you hear, what do you hear? If you hear music, love songs. <laughs> you hear it in Sri Lanka, you hear it all over the world. They're all about love songs, and usually about broken hearts, actually, is a big aspect of love songs, actually. Usually that's a big part. But the, the thing that this signals, doesn't it? You know, money may be important, but these romantic and sexual relationships are actually more important than, than even money, actually. And they're seen as being, they provide meaning and purpose for, for people's lives. And you can see it's celebrated everywhere in poetry, you can see it in songs, paintings, it's just everywhere. You know, this, uh, the importance of these uh, sexual relationships, romantic relationships. Um, so it's uh, something we're very much aware of. <laughs> I think most people are who are watching this. But, of course, these romantic and sexual relationships don't come without their drawbacks, their problems. And uh, I was just going to talk a little bit about that, you know. Um, people will think, well, he is a Buddhist monk. <laughs> but I have to also I'll talk about what the Buddha thought about uh, uh, sexual relationships. And, uh, um, and their part in in human uh, life, um, but these sexual and romantic relationships can lead to very unrealistic expectations, uh, a bit of other people, even of ourselves, and it leads to, can lead to this disappointment. And one can see with uh, romantic love, particularly, you know, they often say. The psychologists have got a, there's a special term for it, actually. They say this romantic love um, can last up to about two years. Can last for up to two years. They have a, there's, an, there's a technical term they use for it. And it is a certain, the, the mind is in a certain state, isn't it? That it's, a, I, I, you know, I see it as a, like a projecting, a projecting of qualities, good qualities on the other person. And that can last for up to two years. After that, I say, hopefully, you're good friends too, because <laughs> then that'll count, actually. It'll really count. But so much of this romance and uh, sexual attraction is projection. What we want to see, we do see. And uh, I call it, you know, it's like an um, image, an internal image we build up. And sometimes it doesn't relate too well to the actual person, <laughs> as you realize over time. And that image I call subanimita. This is what the Buddha called it. Subanimita leads to a passion, to sexual desire, all these things. And so it's good to see that it's a mental image. It's one that's made up. Uh, and actually we're often filling it in with all the things that we like 
and we're seeing it in the person, whether they're actually there, another, who knows. And it's our idea of perfection, isn't it? Uh, so we, and the interesting thing, I, I remember Ajahn Brahm uh, teaching this, and I thought, wow, that's so true. It's not, it's it's not the actual relationship that is the that is bringing out this love and so forth. It is the feeling we associate with that person. It's something internal. It's not. It's not that this other person's giving us all this. It's a feeling. We call it vedana coming up in us. We have a very pleasant feeling for this person. Of course, that can change, <laughs> and often does. So the example is when someone falls in love. We say falls in love actually, and it's actually, uh, you know, not. You know, it's like the mind is really in a different state. It's changed gears. Some people would say slightly crazy. <laughs> uh, and from from that, uh, when someone falls in love, they perceive all, everything about the person that they're focusing on as lovable. It's just they're just perfect. And uh, and the more we think about them, um, so we have this view that they're they're sort of lovable already. And then we start thinking about it and they become even more lovable. And our perceptions uh, chime in too. And we see proof again and again that, uh, you know, they are really lovable and perfect for us. And of course, this sort of uh, projection is also, you know, it's taking, this is going to be forever. We talk about forever. That's what they say in romantic love. Usually they say, this is forever. So we're looking for permanent happiness. And it reminds me of a song uh, I heard years ago. It was a bit uh, cynical, they say. Yeah, cynical. Uh, that um, the singer said, and it was Linda Ronstadt, very old, going back a long time. Did you think forever would last the whole night? <laughs> Did you think forever would last the whole night? And that's, that's what romantic love is about. You know, it's going to be forever. You know, and of course that's not, uh, not quite real. <laughs> And this is going to satisfy us completely. And of course, we take it very, very personally. But as uh, Ajahn Brahm mentions uh, when he's, in one of his stories, actually, of course, when people fall out of love, it's the opposite. And actually, sometimes the, the degree that they fall into love can match the degree that they fall out of love. So Ajahn Brahm, uh, I think he's written a story about the pig of an ex. So the ex-partner that one thinks is a pig. <laughs> so this is one of the negative sides of romantic or sexual love. One shouldn't talk about this on Valentine's Day, perhaps. Certainly uh, the uh, company selling chocolates and flowers <laughs> don't want to hear this. And uh, also when we think about romantic or sexual love, there's a lot of self involved. There's a lot of self. We have a lot of expectations, as I mentioned before, uh, of the other person. There's lots of conditions or limits. The person has to love us back, that's for sure. If they don't, then we're really uh, upset that we want something back from them. And um, the what that can lead to, of course, when it's not returned, when it's uh, not reciprocated, it can lead to frustration. It can lead to manipulation and violence, you know, because people do get violent. The, the person that they regard as so perfect and everything, they can actually uh, uh, kill them, harm them. And of course, many, uh, and also the other possibility, and happens quite a bit, is people commit suicide because of this, particularly the young people have 
no experience. They think, you know, this is their life's finished. So because this person's no longer in their life. So that's uh, with the romantic love. This this is uh, the sort of uh, the sort of drawbacks to it, and how it's constructed in our minds too. There are other types of love that I I won't touch on much, and that's like a, a brotherly or sisterly love. You know, people camaraderie. I suppose you call it camaraderie that people have, and that's a quite. There can be a very uh, uh, a good bond between people. There's self love. And there's also love of ideas and causes. And we can see that, you know, people get attached to their views uh, of particular causes and so on, and they can become uh, very... Uh, they can do anything. when, when We can do anything when we're attached to a view. But, of course, the, for the wonder, the, all the, uh, this, the sexual desire, the romantic desire, is uh, karma raga. This is sensual, sexual desire. And it's a part of desire. This is called, uh, well, you can say karma chanda. Uh, desire, karma, K, long A, M, A, is desire that's connected with the five senses. And it's actually what keeps us getting reborn. I call it the taproot of samsara. It keeps us being reborn. And this part, you know, the sexual desire is a very, very strong part of it. And, not surprisingly, that's why monks and nuns are celibate. <laughs> and also it causes monks and nuns, quite often, it's a, it can be a struggle for them. Uh, because this is a very, very deep instinct, a very, very deep drive. So it's a, it's a very important one that we come to terms with if we are to uh, end the cycle of birth and rebirth. Because, as I say, this is the karma chanda. This is a karma chanda. We are really, or karma tanha, actually, that wanting for the five sense experiences. And this is one of the strongest. And also, uh, it, it also uh, contributes to what we call bawa tanha. And this is to be, to exist, to, to make our mark, to be someone, to uh, have some uh, legacy carry on. You know, and this is a very big part of having children, of creating things, is that sense of legacy. So all these sorts of uh, these wantings, these tanhas, these cravings, they lead to rebirth. So they're obviously things that uh, if we are very serious about uh, developing the path to Nibbāna, we must deal with on, uh, as, as uh, the cause, one of the causes of suffering, of, of the difficulties we live in. So that's uh, very much where the, uh, the Buddha is coming from. And of course you probably all remember you know, the sutta where the, uh, in the Majjhimanikaya where Queen Malika says to her husband, King Pasenadi, that um, the Buddha has taught that... Uh, all those that, who are dear to us, that are, we are close to, they are the source of our unhappiness, our difficulties in life, our sufferings in life. And of course he said to her, rubbish. <laughs> it, it cannot be so. We didn't do this. <laughs> oh dear. All right. And so he... Uh, uh, so, he uh, so the king said, rubbish. And then the, uh, the Buddha... Um, uh, the, then Queen Malika 
asked someone to go to the Buddha and asked, what did you mean by this? And of course the Buddha explained it. And uh, he said, "Those, if somebody who is very close to us, very dear to us, what happens when they pass away? Or they get very sick, you know, close to death even. Or uh, they become, you know, uh, estranged from us. You know, we become separated. And of course it brings up a lot of suffering for a person. If it's somebody you don't know, you know, you don't, you don't get upset about it. And so this person came back to Queen Manika and um, told her what the Buddha had advised. And, and the Buddha, and she told that to the king. And uh, she said to the king, well, you know, if Princess, I can't remember her name, were to get sick or were to die, uh, what, what would happen to you, Your Majesty? And he said, well, of course, I, I, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat, I'd be really upset. And, he, and she said, this is exactly why, the Buddha said, those that are dear to us bring us the most uh, difficulty and suffering in our lives because we attach to them being there. And life isn't uh, predictable. Life is impermanent. We will change. We cannot uh, keep things the same. So this is, uh, this is part of <clears throat> the Buddha's teaching about this sort of uh, sexual and romantic love. I've just remembered I didn't do the the precepts and the chanting. We'll do that in at, towards the end. So out of sequence, but I just saw the card and I thought, oh, something's missing. <laughs> so if this uh, this is the Buddha's teaching, you know, about uh, our situation, that uh, this uh, sexual desire, romantic uh, desire, is not something really to be encouraged. And it reminded me actually of a sutta by the Venerable Anand, I should have liked to have checked this one up, where he's talking to somebody and uh, uh, who was uh, infatuated with him and uh, and then the Venerable Anand, uh, and they asked, you know, uh, um, how can one use defilements to overcome uh, the defilements? And the, and the Venerable Anand has said to this person, said, all the defilements can be used to overcome the other defilement, that defilement, except for sexual desire. That cannot be. And the reason for that, I think, is because when sexual desire arises, we get so absorbed into it that it's not possible to use it, uh, as it were, turn it against itself so we can see it for what it is and give rise to um, insight. So I think that's why he said it. Though at the same time, it reminds me in the Teragata, one, one monk was going on arms round, and he was in a village, and there was a woman, uh, she was an entertainer probably, singing and dancing, and, uh, and uh, lust arose in his mind, so it says in his verses. But then, so did the insight come, or the danger in this, where this leads to, what it, what's, what's the consequences of it. And he saw it so clearly that he became enlightened from that experience. So maybe that does show it is possible only if you have, say, the teaching of a Buddha that's pointing to the dangers in these things. So that was an interesting, an interesting one. But of course, what sort of love is the Buddha encouraging? What sort of, of uh, yes, love is the Buddha encouraging? 
And of course that is, I know you're not going to answer, but metta. <laughs> so metta is, is the sort of love that the Buddha is encouraging. And this is love without conditions. Uh, metta is a, a really important emotion. All beings have it. Um, human beings have it. Everyone has it. Otherwise it would be impossible to develop if we did not have the seed of metta in us. And I like what uh, um, Aya Kema used to call it, the su- a supreme emotion. She said there were four supreme emotions, but this is one of those supreme emotions. The others are compassion, uh, joy for others' success, and equanimity. Um, so those are uh, the four supreme emotions. But it's a feeling of friendliness. Of uh, We call it loving-kindness, but friendliness is closer to the uh, meaning of metta, which is related to the word mitta for friend. But it has a sense of goodwill, well-wishing, uh, all those, and real warmth too for the person, uh, for ourselves and others. And it's gentle, it's not, it's not, it's harmless, it's not wishing harm to the other person. And it's unconditional. This is where, what we're aiming at. It's not just for those that are, we're close to, um, it's for all beings. And it's not just for the ones that treat us well, <laughs> that's very easy, but also for those that you know um, we have a difficult relationship with. And of course, the most important thing, it's not expecting anything back uh, from that other person or the situation, which is really the opposite of um, romantic love or sexual love. And so I'd like to bring up another teaching of the Buddha, um, which makes this really clear. It's beautiful, actually. And I've mentioned it on previous occasions, a famous sutta called the Imperfection Sutta. And this is Upakalesa Sutta. And it's um, sutta number 128 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses. And this story, this uh, sutta occurs after the Buddha had uh, uh, experienced the dispute between the monks in a place called Kosambi. And they'd had a dispute over um, an issue of the monks' rules, very small, and they wouldn't listen to the Buddha at all. Even, you know, <laughs> it's amazing that that should happen. And they said, they, they said that they would take full responsibility for it and he should just have a pleasant abiding, which means experience meditate the, the bliss the happiness of meditation which he called and uh, so the Buddha realized can't do this it's impossible to talk to these uh, monks at this stage and so he left and uh, when he left he uh, he encountered he went and visited some other monks venerable Anuruddha and his two companions venerable Nandia and venerable Kimbala I think it is and this is the teaching uh, that uh, uh, that he well this is the disc, this is what happened when he met Venerable Anuruddha, who later became uh, he was an arahant uh, and one of the major disciples. And the Buddha said to uh, Venerable Anuruddha, "I hope Anuruddha that you are all living in concord, with mutual appreciation, without disputing." blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. That must have been important after <laughs> having witnessed, you know, this dispute where people, where the monks were really, um, you know, using harsh words, 
um, they call them verbal daggers, they described in the suttas. And then the Venerable Anuruddha, he says to the Buddha, surely, Venerable Sir, we are. But of course, the Buddha doesn't let it rest there. He says, but Anuruddha, how do you live thus? So, uh, and, uh, so Venerable Anuruddha's reply is, is classic, and I think it's good, it's good advice for all of us. He said, Venerable Sir, this is talking to the Buddha, as to that, I think thus, it's a gain for me, it's a great gain for me that I'm living with such companions in the holy life. So this is having appreciation for the people we live with. It's very important to see the, the, uh, the good qualities in them, not the, not the faults, to see the, the bigger picture because usually the people we live with, lots of pluses uh, um, in our life together. And so to look with this sense of gratitude, with thanks. And then Venerable continues, I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards these venerable ones, both openly and privately. So this is very important. I'll, I'll mention these a bit later, maybe that's... And I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. It's a good, good distinction, isn't it? It's in everywhere. It's, it's virtually saying 24-7. I maintain mental acts of loving kindness towards them, openly and privately. I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. And this is a lovely part, this nice part, where Venerable Anuruddha says to sum up, we are different in body, Venerable Sir, but one in mind. Isn't that beautiful? That's lovely. So, as I mentioned, you know, this sense of gain, it's a great gain for me, this gratitude and thankfulness, very important in our relationships. And as I say, it's a bigger picture, because sometimes... When we live with each other, we can focus on small things and they become so big, they get blown up. But really, if we look at the bigger picture, there's so much to be grateful for. And this quality makes our mind soft, which is a very good preparation for um, doing metta meditation. But it's also a pleasant experience for us, you know, this sense of gratitude and happiness, uh, gratitude and thankfulness makes us happy, actually. So it's a it's an important important quality to bring to our relationships if we live together is this gratitude and thankfulness and the acts of friendliness um, I maintain bodily acts of friendliness Venerable Anuruddha says towards these venerables both openly and privately and these of course you know, just these are the things that are so important when we live together um, is is to be thinking of the other person, be thoughtful of what they need, uh, thoughtful of how our speech and actions may affect them, um, and to be as helpful as we can, you know, where we can. These, the, the help we can give to people is like a gift to, the, gift to them. You know, it can be small things like cleaning, gardening, washing. It can be like listening to them, supporting them when there's difficult, they're going through difficult times. And as I mentioned before, earlier in the other relationships, giving gifts is a, is a very, is a nice uh, uh, action that actually can go to the heart. And of course this reduces our sense of self. We are not thinking so much 
of ourselves first, thinking of the, <laughs> the other person. And, uh, and very importantly, it's not just in public, because some people can, can be quite well behaved in public, but in private, they may not be so well behaved. So, so this is even when the other person doesn't know we're doing it for them, to do things, you know, to clean up, uh, clear up things, um, just things that you know will be supportive for the other person. And then we can get some happiness from doing that, even though they may never know. <laughs> we know. And so this brings a sense of harmony to the relationship, but it also brings happiness to us. And this is a very important quality uh, that we develop in the mind, this happiness. And uh, so that's this is the actions. And it's um, also important that uh, we develop it through our speech. Uh, and uh, so this is... This is what the uh, Benwilan Ruda mentions as well in friendly speech. I maintain speech which is friendly towards them, towards my companions in the holy life, both openly and privately. And this is a big area. <laughs> it's not a small area. Uh, I used to think, you know, well, you know, right speech is part of the Noble Eightfold Path. Well, it's not that, that important. But in actual fact, this is a very big area where conflicts arise. This is where, you know, the harmful or negative actions usually come from. First, speech, and then the actions. So the Minimalana Ruta mentions, I maintain speech which is friendly towards my companions in the holy life, both openly and privately. So... And as I say, this causes the real hurts and can be the misunderstandings that really uh, upset and uh, can lead to violence even. And it reminds me of the Buddha saying that we are all born with an axe in our mouths. Isn't that a great saying? And he says, we are all born with an axe in our mouths uh, and a fool uh, uses it through abusive speech, uses it through abusive speech. So right speech has to be something which is friendly, kind, gentle, and warm. So, and of course, Memelana Ruda mentions openly and in private. And this in private is very important with speech because this is when we don't talk behind somebody's back, when the person's not there, because often that will get back to them anyway. <laughs> So this speech, this uh, um, uh, speech is very important. Our uh, friendly uh, speech, friendly uh, verbal acts, they call it. And uh, so the speech in private, and this is what the this is a very nice way that the Buddha describes uh, the right speech, and also the he gives the negative, and he also gives the positive. So it's really important. Uh, way of putting it. Abandoning false speech, one abstains from false speech. One speaks truth, adheres to truth, is trustworthy and reliable. One is no deceiver of the world. In relationships, that's so important <laughs> because if one is not truthful, if the speech is not truthful, the trust in the relationship will go out the window. The, the other person will think, well, I don't know if that's the case. And then the relationship, that intimacy, that uh, connection is broken or, or uh, damaged. And the second one is abandoning malicious speech. 
one abstains from malicious speech. One does not repeat elsewhere what one has heard here in order to divide those people from these. Nor does one repeat to these people, the ones ones with now, uh, what one has heard elsewhere in order to divide these people from those. So this is divisive speech, isn't it? But instead, thus one is a, a one, someone who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of friendships, who enjoys concord, rejoices in concord, delights in concord. It's great, isn't it? A speaker of words that promote concord. So that's bringing people together, not dividing them. And in a family, in relationships, this is very important, not playing people off against other people. Um, and the next one is abandoning harsh speech. One abstains from harsh speech. One speaks such words. So harsh speech, you know, uh, what is harsh speech? Harsh, harsh speech could be swearing. It can be swearing. It can be um, speech that's got, is very dominating, coming from anger. It's got a very um, uh, um, intimidating feel to it. Um, it can be many types, abusive speech of any type, you know, where we, we really run the other person down. We talk about the qualities that we, we're saying they have and so on. It can be very, you know, harsh. And uh, instead of that, the Buddha uh, talks about one speaks such words that are gentle, pleasing to the ear, and lovable. Isn't that nice? Lovable. <laughs> and go as go to the heart, are courteous, desired by many and agreeable to many. So this is a very important aspect of uh, speech, that it is pleasant, you know, that we do, we do have pleasant speech and we avoid this harsh speech. As I mentioned in, uh, recently in Australia, harsh speech, at least swearing, <laughs> is very, very common. Um, and as I, I mentioned recently, sometimes people don't even know they're swearing, actually. So it's quite, quite interesting. So they're not aware of right speech. And the next one, the last one the Buddha is talking about, is abandoning gossip. One abstains from gossip. And uh, oftentimes people think, well, what's the harm in gossip? But of course we know that gossip can lead to many harmful things like character assassination. It can lead to a lot of the uh, uh, conflicts that we see in politics uh, due to the social media. It can have a lot of big repercussions, actually, gossip, um, and uh, can destroy people's reputations. Uh, some, uh, and they may not, it may not be true. But instead, the Buddha says, one speaks at the right time. So that's good. Speaks what is fact. Speaks on what is good. Speaks on the Dhamma and the discipline. That's the, the teachings of the Buddha. One speak uh, at the right time. One speaks such words uh, as are worthy of recording, reasonable, moderate, and beneficial. So that's... That's really uh, wonderful speech when it's like that. And that's very important for all of us to, you know, this is a pretty high standard, <laughs> but it's something that we can aim for. If we know about right speech, then we can go towards it. If we don't know about the Buddhist teaching of right speech, we will not think these things so important. And yet, you know, our experience, everybody's experience is speech can be dynamite. <laughs> It can be really, really harmful. 
And the, the third thing that uh, the Venerable Anuruddha mentions, that he, I maintain mental acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. So, and this is very important because oftentimes um, we can have negative thoughts about a person uh, and feelings arising. And uh, so we, we don't want to encourage those ones. We want to let go of them. Uh, see them that they're not leading to our happiness and well-being and we want to maintain positive feelings in the mind and this of course is the uh, the aspect of right effort in the Buddha's path avoiding negative uh, uh, mind states emotions uh, uh, letting go of negative uh, emotions or mind states when they've arisen uh, developing positive mind states that haven't yet come up and then maintaining them. And that's very important. So meta, uh, developing metta is one of these ways we can develop a positive uh, mind state, metta meditation. So metta meditation, we can, uh, uh, I call it friendliness too, develop 24-7. So we develop not only on the cushion. Sometimes people think of it as a, a you know, a meditation do on the cushion, you feel great. But of course, it's, as the Venerable Anuruddha is pointing out, it's when we interact as our actions as well as our speech that are important. And it's not only in public, it's in private. So what he's talking about and what the Buddha is talking about is a 24-7 practice of developing metta, of loving kindness. And it's not as if uh, we won't get the benefits. If we have metta in mind, we'll find happiness, a sense of fullness, warmth, connection, uh, and others will enjoy it too. They will be drawn by it. And at the end of Venerable uh, uh, Anuruddha's uh, comment, reply to the Buddha, he says, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do now. Do we do that? <laughs> Many people don't think like that, do they? Do we? We think, uh, I want to do it my way. And if there's, there's a song, of course, a famous song by Frank Sinatra, and many others have sung it too, doing it my way. Um, and we often feel like we have, to, when we do want to do it our way, it often creates conflict, doesn't it? It creates a, and sometimes the things we want to do are not really that important. Uh, um, that we we do it our way, and so it's good to keep it in in perspective, in perspective, whether this is such an important thing. If it isn't something immoral or unethical, then it's, it's perhaps not such a a big thing to do it and it, it do something differently. And uh, this will create in relationships harmony, peace, and unity. And of course, it's like a gift uh, to the uh, the other. The other, the person that we we are uh, agreeing with, and uh, so this is a very important aspect, and it's it's developing this uh, uh, sense of selflessness, isn't it? Not what we want to do, and of course in the West this is a very big thing. Is individualism is a very big thing, so people are often emphasizing that rather than you know thinking of the harmony in the group, in the family, in the community. And so uh, this is, it's good to be able to recognize where we can compromise and say, yes, let's do it your way. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? 
And that, that openness, as I say, will also um, strengthen the relationship because we're willing to do it another, uh, the way the other person would like it to be. So I'd like to end uh, this Dhamma talk, which is about relationships, talking about the Lunar New Year and talking about St. Valentine's Day. I hope it's sort of brought it together in some sort of meaningful combination I like the fact that these themes are really good because they uh, bring up, uh, they suggest things immediately. Very important for Dhamma talks to have themes or to have questions that bring up uh, in, uh, aspects of Dhamma. So when we see that, uh, you know, this is what makes the world go around, relationships, it's very important we put some effort into those relationships, realizing that. When we are putting that effort in, we are developing this mind, we're developing our minds, we're developing our speech, we're developing our actions, and we're developing the Buddha's path to enlightenment. We're developing the Noble Eightfold Path. So these relationships are an important part of our practice. They're an important part of our life. So I think let's do them well. (laughs) So I'd like to finish there. And uh, now, before we have the questions and answers, I'd better do what I, I forgot to do at the beginning because I, I got into talking about Anicca. And that is to do the uh, three refuges, the five precepts, re- recollection of the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, and also the chanting of loving-kindness. These are important uh, aspects of our practice. They're not just rituals. <laughs> Uh, they can be rituals if people don't attach much purpose or meaning to them, but they're actually very, very meaningful. So we'll do them in Pali today, and uh, um, because I did them in English last week. And uh, if you'd like to join in at home, please do. Um, some of you probably haven't, you don't see this part because it's usually uh, at the be- before the talk. So we can do this. So I will repeat the Namo Tassa three times. And then if you'd like to repeat it after me three times, I'll do the refuges one by one. And then if you repeat them, I will do the five precepts one by one. And if you would like to repeat after them. Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo dasa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambunasa Namo Dasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambunasa Buddhang Saranga Chami Dhammang Saranga Chami Sorry, please do the Namo Dasa three times. <laughs> Buddhang Saranangga Chami Dhammang Saranangga Chami Sankang Saranangga Chami Dutiyampi buddhang saranangga chami.
Dutiampi Dhammang Saranangachami Dutiampi Sankang Saranangachami Tatiampi Buddhang Saranangachami Tatiampi Dhammang Saranangachami Tatiampi Sankang Saranangachami Ti Saranagamanang Nititang And now for the five precepts in Pali. Panatipata veramanisikapadang samadhyami Adinadana veramanisikapadang samadhyami Kame sumichachara veramani sikapadang samadhyami. Musavada veramani sikapadang samadhyami. Sura Meriya Maja Pamadatana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Now we can do the recollections of the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha together. Iti piso bhagava arahang samma sambuddho vijacharana sampano sugato lokabidu anuttaro purisadhammasarati satta devamanusanang Buddha Bhagavati Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanaiko Pachatang Veditabo Vinuiti Supati Panno Bhagavato Samvaka Sangho Ujupati Panno Bhagavato Samvaka Sangho Nyaya Pati Panno Bhagavato Samvaka Sangho Sami Chipati Panno Bhagavato Samvaka Sangho Yadidam Chattari Purisa Yugani Atta Purisa Pugala 
And now we can continue with the Karaniya Metta Sutta. I should have mentioned the chanting, I think, is in the chat, so you can uh, see that if you're not familiar with the uh, Pali, uh, Pali of these chants. So we can begin the Karaniya Metta Sutta, the Buddha's words on loving kindness. Karaniya Mata Kusalena Yang Tang San Tang Padang Abhisamecha Sakko Ujjucha Sujjucha Suvacho Chasamudu Anatimani Santu Sakko Chasubarocha Pakicho chasalahukavuti sant indriyo chani pakocha apagabo kulesu ananugido nachakundang samachare kinchi yena vinyupare upavade yung sukino wa kemino hontu samde satta pavantu sukitatta yeke chipana buddhati tasavatavarava anavase sa digavaye mahantava Majjimarasaka anukatula dita vacha adita yechadure vasanti avidure bhuta vasambhavesiva sambesatta bhavantu sukitat Naparo paraniku beta Natiman yeta katachinang kanchi Bierosana patigasanya Nanyamanya sadukamicheya Matayata niangput Nat, oh, sorry. Matayata niyang putang ayusa eka putamanurake evampisambabutesu manasambavaye aparimana metancha sambalogasming manasambavaye aparimana Udangado chatilianche asambadang averang asapatang titancherang nisinoa sayanoa yavatasa vigatamido 
etang sating aditeya pramametang viharang idamahu ditinchanupagamasilava dasane na sampano kame suvine yagedang nahijatu gabaseyang so there we are. That was a bit unexpected. Part of change, isn't it? <laughs> so that was the third aspect of it, the, the format change too. So now if there are any uh, comments, questions or complaints, uh, please, uh, if there are, we can. Thank you, Ajahn, for the lovely talk. Ah. We do have four questions. And we only have 10 minutes. All right, that's fine. That's, that's fine? Okay. okay. Thanks, Venerable Santa. Thank you for this. So the first one yeah. is from our regular audience from Tokyo. Tokyo. All right. Yes. My parents passed away and left a lot of unfinished jobs. Should I spend my life to complete those jobs to take care of our relationship? Oh. Or what is done is done and let them go. Ah, I think um, you'd have to bring your own wisdom to that. But, you know, if you know things, something is very important to your parents, that's perhaps good to to try and fulfill. Um, it, it's always within, um, you know, the your abilities and, and, and so forth. But, you know, some of those, uh, un, some of that unfinished business may be not so important. So, of course, with life, it's always... You know, prioritizing, isn't it? Finding out what's the most important thing to do. And of course, you know, you, you do your best to fulfill your parents' wishes. But as I say, some of that unfinished business may not necessarily be that of that importance to your parents even. And perhaps why it's unfinished. Because I know a lot of the things I don't, <laughs> I don't finish, I, I don't want to do. <laughs> And, and maybe they're not so pressing. So good if you can get that sense of priority and importance. And of course, you know, just keeping having in mind what your parents would wish for you. And then I don't think any parent would wish to burden their children with a lot of things that they know are going to take a lot of time and cause them a lot of difficulty and perhaps suffering in the process. So please keep it in perspective and uh, focus on what's uh, important uh, for, to you and for your parents as well. Thank you for that. From Tokyo. Thank you, Ajahn. The next question is was um, related to Majima mm. Nikaya 128. 128, yes. The one yes. you mentioned about milk and water. water. Yes, yes. Yes. In order to be able to bend like milk and water, one needs to lose the sense of self. Would you um, like to give some practical measures? Thank you. Ah, right. Uh, one has to lose the sense of self. Of course, blending like uh, milk and water, yes, you do have to reduce that sense of self. You know, what, when, when you are practicing, say, metta by, um, by body, by actions, by speech, and through our minds, we're doing that actually because, you know, uh, as I mentioned at the end of uh, the uh, Venerable Anuruddha's comment, you know, his reply to the Buddha, that uh, he thinks, well, why don't I do what the other venerables wish to do? So when we when we are, you know, um, 
speaking, acting and thinking with metta, we are reducing this sense of self just by that process. We're increasing, we're increasing our awareness, uh, uh, this friendliness, this warmth, giving it to other people. So this is, you know, the practice of the path is really aimed at reducing this uh, uh, sense of self, and it will happen very naturally. Of course, where the sense of self is really reduced is when there's major insights. That is actually where the big breakthrough comes through, comes because the major insight, of course, for a stream enterer is to see that there is no permanent I, me, and self inside. And that is the breakthrough that makes the rest of the path possible. It's based on understanding there is no nothing permanent in this world. There is no uh, permanent happiness to be had. There's not a permanent self. And so this understanding and the fact that what is running the, the, our lives is conditioning, is conditioning. We are as we are because of our conditions. Conditioning, sorry. And uh, these conditions are creating the sense of personality and self we have at this moment. But it's not anything that's permanent. It's changing. It's ongoing. Work in progress. So these are ways that we can do it. But all acts of kindness, um, gentleness, giving, these will all reduce self in a big way. And they're important because they're coming from the heart, aren't they? They're not just a mental <laughs> or conceptual uh, approach. But really the big breakthrough will come when we see uh, anatta, non-self. And as I say, this will be the breakthrough to stream entry, uh, so one or sotapanna. Yes. So that's, that's what I would say. So good. <laughs> Thank you for that question. Thank you. Yes. The next question. I'm scared of falling sick and getting hospitalized. Yeah. It would be a very big burden and waste of time for me and my family. How to deal with this worry? Mm. Yeah, it's good to deal with that worry because that worry can actually make you sick, can't it? It can uh, make you your immune system more vulnerable to becoming sick. So, so how do we reduce worrying about falling sick? This is uh, the way we can do that is to understand first of all um, that this is part of life, isn't it? Uh, the Buddha focuses on old age sickness and death. Sickness is part of it. And of course it's part of impermanence, this fact that everything is changeable, is unpredictable, unreliable. When we have that understanding that things are like this, they can change without a moment's notice. When the causes and conditions change, so can our situation, our health our states of mind can change too. So when we have this understanding, it's like uh, Ajahn Chah mentions that um, when there's a dam, if a dam doesn't have a spillway, this is where the excess water can run off, uh, what happens? The water just builds up and then it'll eventually push the dam wall down. It'll collapse and then perhaps cause a lot of destruction below it. But if it has a spillway, a way that the excess water can flow off, there is no problem. And this spillway in this uh, simile is, of course, understanding that life is impermanent, it's unpredictable, it's uncertain. And this is actually the reality of life. And when we know that, when we do have these experiences of uh, old age sickness and death, as we all get, 
having been born, having a body, we'll get those experiences in some shape or form, and to some degree, or, or rather. So when we understand that that's part and parcel of, of what we have brought into coming to uh, existence, having a human body, then that knowledge, that understanding can help us when we get sick and um, and then we can sort of not be swept away with it. We we may not be able to say what Ajahn Brahm says when you go to the doctor and you're sick and you should say to the doctor, something's right with me, doctor, I'm sick. Most people go, of course, and say the opposite, which is you know what we feel. But um, you may not be able to say that. But at least if you have the wisdom to understand, ah, it's part of life, you know. And it's not convenient. Life isn't convenient. Impermanence isn't convenient. Um, and unpredict, uh, unpredictability, unreliability are not pleasant. When you know that, then you're not so swept away with it. So that's what I would suggest to you. Develop that wisdom aspect to see. And this will support you emotionally as well. So I hope that helps. So thank you. And the last one, is it? Yes, the last question. Yes. How do one let go the anger that arises with a loved one without just suppressing or expressing the anger feelings. Because if suppress, mm. it might come up later and express very harsh way. Yes. How to deal with feelings of anger and resentment, so not in uh, either it's suppressing them or expressing them. Yes, that's that's uh, that's a, it's a, like a whole talk, really. <laughs> but basically, you know, we realize, and, and this is one of my favorite sayings at the moment, it's a fake Buddha quote, but I still like it. You know, um, it, it says, hanging on to anger or resentment is like drinking poison and then expecting the other person to die. So when we realize that this anger and resentment is something in me, the other person has triggered it, you know, or the situation has triggered it, that can help us actually a bit just to step back. We can step back and uh, not react straight away with actions or speech. But of course, you know, when one is angry and upset, who needs the attention first? We do. <laughs> the other person may not be upset or bothered at all or even angry uh, at what, what's happened or what's been said or done. So at those times, we need to give this loving kindness to ourselves, this friendliness to ourselves, soothe ourselves, and in that way deal with the anger within us. Then um, it's possible we can deal with the other person in a better way. So this is not um, suppression because we're acknowledging what we've experienced, we're experiencing, and we're dealing with it in a, a, a way that is beneficial for our own happiness and well-being. And it's not expression because we're not saying, acting on that anger and resentment uh, and, and giving the other person uh, uh, some harsh speech or some harmful actions. The Buddha actually recommends five techniques for dealing with anger and resentment. I'll just mention them briefly. Metta, which is what I'm just talking about, and also uh, compassion, uh, having compassion for the other person, because you know that uh, they, they were not in a good space if they uh, do or they act or they speak like that and also having equanimity this sort of acceptance that they're like this at the moment this person but uh, this situation but it won't always be 
And then the fourth method he mentions is to ignore or just um, not pay attention to it. Now that's pretty tough. <laughs> that's pretty hard. And the fifth method he mentions for removing uh, resentment or anger is to reflect that this person, myself included, we are the owners of our karma. We're the heirs of it. We're the heirs of our actions, of body, speech, and mind. And whatever come, uh, and also we are born from it. This is our, like our relatives, it's so close to it, it's our refuge. Whatever acts of uh, we do that are good or bad, we will get the result, so will they. And this is a sort of understanding that uh, doesn't wish harm on the other person, but it knows whatever we do negatively will give rise to negative results. So this is where um, it, that wisdom can come in can be very helpful, actually. So those five methods that the Buddha mentioned, uh, it's in the, oh, it must be in the Anguttara, uh, Anguttara Nikaya, that's numerical discourses in the five. So I think it's Sutta 162, number one. Yeah, because we've been talking about that, about that recently, last month, I think. So So I hope you find that useful. The Buddha's teachings are always very useful and uh, We've just got to find out how we can practice it and make it real for ourselves, make it work for us. So wish you well with that. And this is an important part of our practice. I think people often think the defilements are getting in the way of our practice. But I say to people, they are our practice. <laughs> Dealing with them, learning from them. So thank you very much. And may uh, you uh, develop these positive relationships and uh, may you have a happy Lunar New Year, and also an enjoyable St. Vin- Valentine's St. Vincent's St. Valentine's Day. St. Vincent's is a charity <laughs> here in Melbourne, so that help people. So uh, please uh, have a uh, uh, and celebrate these days in the best possible way. Yeah, to bring happiness to yourself and to your relationships. Sadhu, sadhu. Now we can pay respects to the Buddha Dhamma and Sangha. Uh, if you'd like to join in, you're welcome. I'll do it. I'll do it during the chanting, actually. So that's all right. Arahang sama samundo bhagava bhunhang bhagavantang abhivadeemi swagato bhagavata dhammo dhammang namasami. Supati Pano Bhagavato Samvaka Sangho Sankang Namami Sadhu 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 Thank you for watching today.